So if you had to pick the absolute worst job that you could have, what would it be? What? Working at McDonald's. Why would you do that? Does someone get paid to do that? Oh, yeah, Ethan. Interesting. Okay. So careeraddict.com a few days ago released their top 25 worst jobs. This is true. This is true. So here's mine. Here is mine. Customer service representative. I don't know why. I just have no interest in all day, every day, people calling to complain and yell at me like I personally ruined their life. Unfortunately, I have made that call a couple of times. And what I've discovered is they all have the same script. They all do two basic things. They acknowledge that you had a bad experience. And they, they assure you that in the future, it's going to be better. They're working on a patch to fix that problem. Or we'll ship you the correct size free of charge. A and what we're going to see tonight is that that's really the tone of the letter to Smyrna. Now, if you were with us uh, last week, you might remember that, that we're looking at, at uh, these letters, and they're really reviews uh, of the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. In it, Jesus, through the apostle John, is pulling back the curtain. He's revealing the true state of these churches, what they're doing well and where they need to improve. But this mini letter that we're looking at tonight functions a little differently. Jesus really isn't reviewing the church of Smyrna. Rather, he is seemingly responding to a negative review that they might have left. See, Smyrna is really the only city mentioned in these chapters that's still a city today. Now it's called Izmar. It's in modern-day Turkey. And, and there are several things that made Smyrna unique, but the one that we're most interested in tonight is its demographics. It had a very large Jewish population, and that actually made it very difficult to be a Christian. And so as we go through this letter, I want you to imagine that the church of Smyrna is giving Jesus a negative review. Now, not out loud, of course. They would never say this out loud. But in their heads and in their hearts, they're harboring some frustrations about their current situation. And I want you to imagine that Jesus is responding to that unspoken review. And so as we move through this letter, we're going to see those two things, that he acknowledges the situation, and he assures them about changes in the future. So look with, at verse 9 with me. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is really big into this, this formula where he makes a generalization and then, it, then gives the specifics of their situation. So in this sense, he says, I know your tribulation. I know that you have adversities. And then he lists them out. He reminds them and acknowledges what they are. First, they're poor. Now that is a bummer. But a lot of people in this life aren't rich. So why is Jesus saying that that is a tribulation for them? And it's because we have to acknowledge that there are, are, are several reasons why someone in this situation would be poor that has nothing to do with where they are born or how well they handled their money. Uh, for example, uh, the Christians most likely had suffered some type of destruction of their property, of their wealth, from other religious factions that were in the area. 
Or maybe they couldn't take jobs that they used to be able to take because it goes against their belief system. Idol maker, for example. Or perhaps they were following Paul's encouragement to give generously, which means they have much less to get. Whatever the reason, they're poor. And it's a trial, it's a tribulation for them. But it's actually much worse than that. Not only are they in poverty, but they are being slandered. Now, to slander someone means that, that you are speaking about them with the goal of damaging their reputation, making their life difficult. And the group that's out to get these Christians is the synagogue of Satan. And I'm pretty sure that when I read that, your, your ears perked up a little bit because that name strikes us. We're intrigued. Like, was there really like a satanic temple like right there in Smyrna? Like, what's going on here? And it's nothing as literal as that. Like, you wouldn't be walking around Smyrna and say, huh, first synagogue of Satan. No wonder what happens in there. Uh, it, it, rather, Jesus is using some graphic imagery to describe the Jewish population in Smyrna. So here's what was going on. Before this letter was written, the emperor at the time rose the power, instituted emperor worship, which is exactly what it sounds like. He expected people to bow down to him or statues of him like he was a god. And this practice was heavily enforced. However, there were some exemptions to the decree, like if you were Jewish, because it was a long-standing religion and they were monotheistic, they only worshiped one god, then they were grandfathered in. They didn't have to adhere to this decree. And at the beginning of all this, Christianity was considered a variant or a sect of Judaism, which meant they were exempt and they were protected by law from having to do this. And this is where things got difficult. See, the Jews greatly disliked the Christians, and so they started slandering them. They started letting it be known that the Christians had nothing to do with the Jews, which in turn turned the spotlight and the government scrutiny right on them. And so the Christians started being targets for riots, government scrutiny, etc. And the reason the Jews would have done this is because they were protecting God's people, the Jews. And so Jesus is using this image ironically. They think they're Jews. They think they are a synagogue or the gathered people of God, but really they're just doing the work of Satan and hurting God's people. And this is the situation in Smyrna. It's rough. Their life is made difficult in every way because of what they're facing. And Jesus rightly acknowledges the situation. And as you would expect, he moves into an assurance of future change. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for 10 days, uh, and you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. His assurance is that things are going to get worse. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse later. Um, they weren't just going to be poor or slandered, now they're going to be thrown in prison, which is how uh, the Romans dealt with things. You were either thrown in prison to wait trial or you were thrown in prison to await execution. Those were your options. Which is why Jesus says that some of them will need to be faithful unto death. But within that bleak, picture of their present and future circumstances, Jesus assures them of two things. First, they are actually rich. Did you catch that in verse 9? That even though they are, are poor, parentheses, you are actually rich. And the first time I read that, I thought to myself, 
This sounds a lot like saying, a saying to a blind person, you see things so clearly. Like it almost feels insulting to me. But it's actually not the first time that Jesus has said something like this. If we were to take our Bibles and turn back to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, we would find Jesus saying this, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred, hundredfold uh, in the age to come. He assures them that they are stockpiling wealth even if they can't see or experience it right now. And he assures them that that is waiting for them at the end. That right now they are being tested that the devil is seeing what they're really made of. You know, if you were to go on Facebook Marketplace or wh wherever you tried to find a deal, you would find tons of AirPods. They're just, they're, they're as plentiful as the sand of the sea for a really good price. But if you do a little bit of research, you'll discover that most of them are fakes. They're phonies. And so there are websites dedicated to walking you through all the ways to verify that AirPods are genuine in the same way there can be a lot of fake Christians, right? And one of the greatest way, the greatest way to determine the fakes from the genuines is suffering. It's their willingness to go through the tribulation for Jesus. And so what God is doing is allowing the believers in Smyrna to be tested. And the reason Jesus is telling them this is so that they will go in determined to pass to set their sights on getting through and gaining the victor's crowd. He want crown. He wants them to be prepared for the hardship that's coming and to face it head on so that they succeed, so that they finish the race. And, and they do. But the question that I want us to ask ourselves is, do we? Do we go head on into hardship? Do we stand for Jesus and take whatever affliction comes our way? And oftentimes, I have to answer no. I just think about the last week. Where did you compromise on some things? Or where did you try to avoid scrutiny or, or not standing out? Think about those times that we keep our mouths shut or we just laugh along with everyone else. I think the reality is, deep down, we do that because we aren't assured. That, that all we see is this looming trouble, and we aren't convinced that holding on to Jesus is the move because we're we can only be as assured as the person assuring us, right? If, if I call customer support and they give me the same answer five times and nothing changes, I'm not very assured, even though they assure me. And so it, it, for the Smyrna believers, and for us as well, to go through hardship, we have to be assured of the assurer, which is why the way Jesus introduces himself is so important. See, back in verse 8, he, he, he introduces himself that these are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and the one who came to life. And in that, he gives two assurances behind this assurance. First, he says that he's the first and the last, which means that he is sovereign over all things, that he was ruling over all things in the beginning, and he will be ruling over all things at the end which is why he can promise them that they will be afflicted for 10 days. Now, the odds are this doesn't mean that every affliction will last 10 normal business days. Uh, rather, he's saying that, that every tribulation is a defined length of time. No affliction is indefinite, 
and God will not give you something that will destroy you. That God is in control and will make certain that the tribulation is not too great. But that, of course, doesn't change the fact that it, it will be a terrible time which is why the second title is so important, that he's the one who died and came to life. See, if the Smyrna believers were going to be faithful unto death, they had to be convinced that they were enduring this for the one who had conquered death. That even if they suffered, uh, suffered unto death, that death wasn't the end. And that really is the assurance that you and I can hold on to. Not just that Jesus is sovereign over everything, not just that Jesus stands at the end of all with victory in life, but that Jesus never asks us to endure something that he himself hasn't already endured for us. And so I think the question for us to wrestle with from this text is, do I actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do I actually believe that he's sovereign over my life, even if that means affliction and suffering? Have I actually grasped that he endured for me so that I can, in turn, endure for him? Guys, taking a stand for anything is scary. And taking a stand for him is absolutely terrifying. And to, and to do it, to, to finish well, to, to get the victor's crown, we have to cling to him. The good news is that he's always there to the end.